0: why do we settle when it comes to the faith? Why do we settle when it comes to faith? That's my paraphrase of what the author, C.S. Lewis, wrote a number of decades ago. And he was pointing out that our problem as as humans isn't so much that our our passions and that our desires are, are, are too strong. It's often what we hear, often what we're told. No, he says that's not the problem. And it's not that the Bible is telling us that we need to just kind of tone things down, you know, become become very stoic about things. No. Instead, the problem is that we're not passionate enough. We we settle for a a, a little bit of Jesus, a, a little slice of His grace. Almost like a, a non-fat version of Jesus. you know, Kind of all the, all the flavor, but none of the actual filling. You no, know, instead we do that rather than all that He has to offer. And that means that we end up pursuing so much less than what we are called to do and, and to be. This is why we fool around, for example, with gender thinking that if we can just choose it ourselves, then we'll be happy. This is why we slip into and out of different identities, whether it's national or polit- political, or, or perhaps your hobbies. It's why every home decorating magazine shows the perfect house with the perfect spouse and the perfect kids. Right? again and again and again, we think these things will make us happy. If we can just be passionate enough about them, And yet, for those who have tried some of these things, you still have days of unhappiness. A nagging sense of, well, is this all that there is? The author of Hebrews wants us to feel that nagging sense in our passage this morning. What we need to walk away from here today is to know and believe and to live in a way that shows how Jesus is greater than anything this world has to offer. Anything and everything. If you're not there yet, why don't you navigate to the book of Hebrews, chapter 1. We're going to pick things up with verse 5. Again, that's Hebrews, chapter 1. We're going to pick up with verse 5. And what we're going to see today is an, is an argument, well, really, that we're not very used to. We're not used to this kind of writing. Let me read a few verses and you'll see what I mean. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. I could go on, and we will here momentarily. But you can probably already see in your own Bible that what we have for today is a series of quotation after quotation after quotation Right? We're not used to this kind of writing, first of all, because we're not used to this kind of persuasion. The author of Hebrews is not just writing about a, a topic. This is not an essay for Bible Writing Class 101. He's not just aiming to inform us of something. No, instead, he wants to persuade us of a truth that will change our lives. That's why he's writing. Friends, we need more of this. We need to be pulled out of our our, our constant busyness and distraction. We need to have the Lord grab hold of our ears and eyes and get us to stop living through our screens and our online profiles so that we would see and hear and taste and know how good the Lord is in every possible way. That's what our author is doing. That's what we're going to see through example after example. That's the first reason why this is a little bit maybe difficult for us. Here's the second. It's going to be because we don't know the Old Testament nearly as well as we ought to. The first readers of Hebrews would have been picking up on all these references. Perhaps in their background they might have even memorized a number of these and know exactly what the author's writing about. For most of us, we probably don't. These are obscure sayings. or We might know one or two, but the others? And because of this gap in our knowledge, we don't often think deeply about the Old Testament, about how it, how it points forward to Jesus, and how it tells of God's goodness and promises fulfilled in Christ Jesus will be massively helped if we start to see those connections. That's actually one of my underlying goals in having us study Hebrews. If you haven't figured it out yet, the book of Hebrews is all about showing how Christ fulfills things that were prophesied in the Old Testament. In some ways, you could say Hebrews is the, it's the link between Old and New Testaments. Showing us God's promises made and God's promises kept. So we are going to uh, are gonna make a first start at seeing those connections here this morning. We're gonna dip our toes briefly into each quotation. I say briefly because this could easily be a series on its own. But for today's purposes, I want us to see the the depth and the breadth of what the author of Hebrews is giving. Sometimes what we need is we need to sit in something and just stew for a while. You you really need to kind of notice every possible aspect of whatever it is, and that's good. Matter of fact, I'll make a mental note right now. Someday we will come back to Hebrews 1 and we'll really pull apart every, every bit of it. But sometimes you also need the big picture You need to see everything at once and just have your jaw drop in awe of, wow, as the the hammer blows of truth keep coming and coming, as as, as the bricks of the foundation are built on one another. And it's that second one that we're aiming for this morning as we see Christ's greatness. We start in the first half of verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Our author starts with a uh, a rhetorical question. That is to say, a a question where you already know the answer, because the answer is no. I mean, did God ever say these words, which come out of Psalm 2, verse 7, did he ever say these to any angel? Well, no, no, he didn't. So who then are these words about? Well, if you kept a a finger in Hebrews and flipped to Psalm 2, uh, what you would see if you skimmed down them is that they are all about what the Lord will do and how he will ultimately send his own king to rule over all things, all people, all nations, indeed everything that there is. And this coming king will be God's son The king isn't an angel. He isn't some sort of powerful, just spiritual being out there. No, instead, he is himself God, God's very own son. What's more, in the second half of verse five, we read, "Or, or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Did God ever say to any angel that he would be their father? This question comes out of 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14. That's a famous passage. You might not know the reference, but this is about God's covenant with David. A covenant where, you remember, David had the idea that he wanted to build God a house, he wanted to build a temple. And instead, God said, No, no, it's going to be the other way. The Lord is going to be the one who will build a, a house, a dynasty, a genealogy for David. Not only that, but David is going to be father to a a future king. Not only Solomon, but even going down the family tree, a future king who would come from David's line, one who would not just be a human king who lives and dies and maybe make a statue of him, but instead one who would rescue his people. So not only is this true of of Solomon, one of David's direct sons, but it's more clearly and directly true of Jesus. One of my favorite passages in the New Testament is of a man named Bartimaeus. See, Bartimaeus is blind. And in that time, anyone who was blind was was basically destitute. They generally could not work, a lot of times because their families couldn't provide for someone who's not earning their own keep. Usually these folks would be homeless. They find Bartimaeus out there, out of a home, on the side of a road, and yet the shocking thing about Bartimaeus is that he sees. And I don't mean that he's healed, that does happen, but he sees something even while he's blind, and it's because he sees this truth. He says, have mercy on me, Son of David. See, Bartimaeus got it. That this king, this Jesus, was of the promised line, that he himself fulfills what God had said so long ago. Notice again then, no no angel, no other being does God say this of. Which, before we move on, we should probably talk about why that is. Why is it that the author of Hebrews is so concerned to show how Jesus is greater than any angel? Why is that the comparison? Well, I think one reason that I could give very directly now, um, have you noticed that even folks who aren't Christian, even folks who would call themselves not religious, they're still okay with angels? I mean, at least what they think of as an angel. It's OK to, to, to write books and to, to talk about you know the angel protecting you on the, on the highway, or our culture's not against that. Right? For some reason, we still think of angels in, a, in an okay sense, almost like a cosmic genie just giving people what they want. We can almost be superstitious about it. That's nothing new. Folks. We're often tempted to think that way of any spiritual being. And so first, we need to see that that what we need most, dear friends, is not a guardian angel. It's not to be, as the old TV show said, touched by an angel. It's not to... No, what we need most is Christ. But that's only one reason. Here's, Here's another. I think it's because of how powerfully angels are shown to be in the Bible. They're the ones that, that when people meet them, what do they do? I've pointed this out before. They, they cower before them. I think because of perhaps popular culture, we get this idea that you know, an angel shows up and, and we're just sitting there like buddy-buddy. That's not what we see in the Bible. In the Bible, people are afraid. There is this being who is, who is more powerful and does things that no human could ever do. So I think one of the reasons we need to see here is to compare an example that God's people did know. Hey, wow, these these angels that have appeared to our forefathers, they're amazing. They're God's messengers. And now the author of Hebrews says, yeah, they are. And Jesus is even greater than them. More powerful, stronger, more knowing. Christ is more than any angel. One other reason, perhaps, is I think that powerful though Christ is, if you remember, his appearance as a man didn't quite strike fear in the people. Isaiah prophesies that Jesus really has no, no appearance to look upon. He's certainly not going to make the cover of Time magazine. doesn't have the, the dashing good looks of some of the paintings we've seen of surfer Jesus with perfect hair. you know. No. Not at all. Would it be so surprising then that people who didn't meet him firsthand would tend to downplay him? Tend to think, well, okay, yeah, there's this teacher and that's great and he, he said some things about God, but let me tell you where the real power is. It's in the angels. No. See, what we need to see here... Ultimately, is that Jesus Christ is greater than even the, the greatest spiritual beings that are out there. The author of Hebrews wants us to know that, that Jesus is greater than anyone or anything created because Jesus himself is not created, he is God. And that's why our third quote speaks to this relationship. You find it in verse 6. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Jesus is referred to as the firstborn in Romans chapter 8. And there Paul shows how Jesus relates to and, and, and identifies with God's people. Jesus was born, he took on flesh. He's still God, but now he's the God man. Fully God, fully man. And his work brings all who trust in him to salvation. He was exalted. Those who believe in him shall join him. That's what it means to be the firstborn. But what does it mean to worship him? The quotation in this verse comes out of Deuteronomy, chapter 32, verse 43. Maybe that's someone's life verse, but otherwise that's the reference. And it's been called the Song of Moses. That's where this is from. It speaks to how good and perfect the Lord is. And near the end of that song, we see this comparison. Even the angels of God will worship the promised one, God's son. Wait a second. Perhaps some of you are are saying, you know, some of you are very good Bereans. And so you're following along, and when I said Deuteronomy 32-43, you flipped back there, and you said, hmm, that's not quite what my Bible seems to be saying. And if that's so, then I suspect your Bible also has a footnote there. And it probably says something like, Cited from the Greek, or the LXX reads, or the Septuagint says... Now, we're not going to go all the way down that rabbit hole. Time prevents us from doing a deep dive today. But the very brief explanation is that the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew, and yet it ended up being translated into Greek in the centuries and decades before Jesus came to Earth. Uh, Oftentimes, then, that's why, like if you look up uh, a quotation in the New Testament, and sometimes it'll not quite match the old. You know, it'll be similar, but not perfectly so, and you think, what's going on? Well, it's because Jesus and the apostles are usually, not always, but usually quoting from Greek rather than Hebrew. If you know anything about languages, you know that moving from one to another, you explain things in different ways, same concept, but use different words to do it, that's what's going on here. Now, that doesn't make the Hebrew uninspired. It doesn't mean you need to worry about, well, well, wait a second, what does this mean about Deuteronomy? No. God's inspiration goes to the Old and New Testament. Every verse, every... There's one part in the Scriptures where Jesus uses the tense of a a verb, the present tense, and he says that's inspired even. So, So this is not a cause to worry. But if you're one of those who looks up references, as you should, that's kind of what's going on. Uh, we can talk more about that another time. Here would be the example I would give, though. Um, I don't quote Greek to you, or Hebrew, for that matter. I quote English. I think God's Word is meant to be communicated. It's meant to be understood. Many of the Jews of Jesus' time didn't have a good grasp of Hebrew anymore. Remember, they have been a, a, a people who have pretty much been fought over by every other nation all around, most recently, in that case, Rome. Greek, in fact, was far better known even among the Jews, and that's why it was often used. So, we could ask a lot more questions, I know. But for now, know that Jesus and the authors of the scriptures had no problem citing the Greek as the Word of God, to trust their insights over our own. Big picture then, if even God's angels worship the Son, how much more must we? Now it doesn't end there. Verse 7, we we speak of these angels. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his his ministers a, a flame of fire here, I, the author of Hebrews wants us to see something that's very simple but profound. Not only do these angels worship Jesus, but their role is also very different than him. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. We read that he is the king. He will return as the king. Angels, on the other hand, are messengers. They're servants. They're appointed by God for his purposes. That's what we learn here out of Psalm 104. Now the comparisons continue, verses 8 and 9. Right? And as they do, just, just, I want you to picture in your head, Right, we're, we're building the foundation. Jesus is, is greater. Right? He's, he's greater than any angel by what God says of him. He's, he's greater because he's worshipped. He's greater because... Well, let's read and see. Verses 8 and 9. But of the Son, He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of Your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, Your God, has anointed You with the oil of gladness beyond Your companions. This comes out of Psalm 45. And this time it's telling us that Jesus Himself is not simply Better than an angel, but not quite God. Not simply, well, part of God. Maybe maybe a slice of God. No, instead it's telling us that this Jesus is Himself God. The person the psalm is speaking of is the Lord. It is Yahweh. And the author of Hebrews is showing us that this God being spoken of is, more specifically, Jesus. So just as we learned earlier that Jesus is fully man, now we see he's fully God as well. And he, he didn't give that up. He's not um, he's not Clark Kent and Superman. Okay, you know I, I you know here's here's God and oh wait you know these people need someone to die for them. All right, let me change into my costume. I'll go I'll go die. I'll ascend. Okay, and now I'm back. That's not what the scriptures say. In the book of Acts, it tells us that Jesus will actually return in just the same way he left. And one of the truths of that is that means that he will return not just as fully God, but with a body, fully man. In this, we see that Jesus is greater. Greater than any angel. Greater than than any other person, anyone we can, think of or imagine. And it doesn't stop there. Look at verse 10. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same. And your years will have no end. Jesus is shown as, as God to be greater than creation. Creation, it wears out. It groans. Jesus doesn't. Clothing wears out. Not Christ. That might seem to be an odd comparison, and yet that was one of the miracles that God did for his people back in the Old Testament for a time. Right? This Jesus then, he doesn't explain buyer. He doesn't go away. We don't need to upgrade him. He's never too old fashioned. You know, it's uh, interesting to me how much our world is changing. I remember back in the day of dial-up internet. Some of you remember that. Over the phone, it would make those weird screeching noises. And at the time, we thought this was amazing. Like, oh, Oh look, I'm connected to the world. I can send an email and nowadays, that's enough. Right? If you still had dial up today, I'm sure there's probably someone who offers that somewhere, but you can't even load most web pages. It would take hours. No, we need faster. We need better. We need None of that is true of Jesus. He never needs to be upgraded. He never wears out. He's never not enough. He's never too old. He's never unsupported. No. Because Jesus is God, our God. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the one that we worship, then, is exactly the one that we need. That's the picture given us from Psalm 102. Verse 13 gives us our final quotation. And I know, we're, we're kind of barreling through these, aren't we? You know, you just feel that it's like you're being pummeled with the Old Testament. And I think that's intentional. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? This you need to remember. It comes from Psalm 110. And you're going to see that the author of Hebrews loves Psalm 110. We're going to come back to this again and again and again. Um, if you want to get a little bit of a head start on understanding Hebrews, work Psalm 110 into your devotions. Right? You know, maybe revisit it every, every week or two. Because you're going to see that this actually plays a, a pivotal role in the book of Hebrews. Now the whole psalm speaks of Jesus. In fact, Jesus applies these words to himself in Matthew 22. But the point is that Jesus is the son of David who is, shockingly, greater than David. I don't see any shocked looks. And the reason why is because we're not from a traditional culture. Um, If you would go even to the Middle East or the Near East today, uh, if you would go into a number of Asian cultures you would find that, that older is thought of as, as better, as greater. Right? They're generally, other than usually where Americans have had an influence, there's generally not this idea of everything is, is kind of progressing to be better and greater. And, and so the children are greater than their parents and smarter than their grandma. That's not true in most of the world. Instead, most of the world is much more like this. How, how, can, how can some great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson great of David somehow be greater than David? I mean, David is the king that conservative Jews still look back to today. And you're telling us Jesus is somehow better than him? And that, would be the, that would be the argument that they would have. And Psalm 110 says, yeah, that's exactly the case. Jesus is greater, because he is the greatest. Jesus, in fact, turns this thinking upside down because he is David's Lord, even as he is David's son. And so Jesus, not David, is both God and Cain. Now, all of these quotations, and there's been a lot, right? Honestly, well done for keeping up with this, because this is a hard, hard passage So all of these quotations then are showing one simple fact that Jesus is greater than all others, all rivals, any other comparison we could make. What then do we do with this truth? How do we respond to this reality? And I think verse 14 helps us to start doing that. Are they not all ministering spirits? sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? And You say, I, I, I don't get it. Well, the answer is, is one of those ones that's so simple that it's profound because in a sense it's obvious. If the angels worship Jesus and serve Him, if they are, in a sense, you know, more powerful than we, then how foolish would we be to settle for worshiping anyone or anything less. I mean, that's the comparison. That's the conclusion that the author of Hebrews is drawing here at the end of chapter 1. If, if even these, these powerful, mighty beings created by God, right, you think of, uh, think of Daniel, where, where it's like the curtain's pulled back a little in those final chapters, and, and you see that there's this heavenly battle going on if even these powerful angels worship Jesus, the one who's not so much to look upon, the one who who died on a cross, which was considered the most cursed way to die in the Roman Empire, if they still worship Him then, how much more should we? Why would we settle for anything less? Worshiping yourself is aiming too low. Far too long. I know that's common. I know that's what our culture says is best. I also noticed that it's not working. I remember very, very clearly. In third grade, I transferred to a new school. And this was back in the time when guidance counselors would come into the classroom, and you'd have a little guidance counselor session once a week. And I remember one of the things they wanted us to do was create this thing called a me box make like a little box, you put your name on it, and this is my me box. And you'd put things in it that, that, that expressed yourself, that, that, that really drew attention to you and how great you were. Right? So this has been going on for decades, by the way. It's not a new thing. And yet, where's that me box now? I have no idea. You thought I was going to say I rediscovered it. No, I have no clue. Why? Well, apparently, it didn't matter enough to keep around. Looking at me is not enough. Worshiping culture isn't going to do it. Culture's already changing. What about identity? That's the new thing now. I notice that we've tried this experiment now for some 15 to 20 years. I don't really see that people are any happier. In fact, the statistics on self-harm and suicide are even worse. Worshiping some sort of man-made idol will never truly satisfy. Ever. It didn't in the Old Testament. You know, all those things we laugh at. Oh, they bow down to that little wooden carving and we think that's funny. We bow down to all sorts of things here today. Money, politics. I already mentioned identity. None of those will give you the security and the hope and the joy that you yearn for. Worshiping the goodness of family will never truly put your anxieties to rest. Friends, we could spend all day disarming everything we're tempted to place our hope in, but the reality is this, only when we worship Jesus, only when we we give to Him all of ourselves, not just part of it, not just the, the Sunday morning sliver, but all of ourselves, all of our life, what we we hope to do with the days that God gives us, what we we dream that we will hopefully accomplish before our life is done, only when we give all of that to the Lord, only when Jesus is king of everything in your life and mine, only then will we come to a resting place that can be trusted, a, a king who will never disappoint, a savior who can redeem us from all that ails us, only then will you have true happiness. A happiness that lasts. So what do we do? We can know this, and the author of Hebrews has taught us it. Will we believe it though? Will we ask the Lord to to change our, our thinking and our hearts and what we desire? People of old used to call it our affections. Where we ask the Lord to change our affections to desire what He desires, to want what God wants, to follow what Jesus has said. How will you know? How will you know if if that's what your life is adding up to? If that's what it looks like? Well, first, it looks like this. It looks like worship. It looks like singing praises about him, not about us. Uh, about placing the focus and the spotlight on him, not on what you and I can do or not do. Worship Jesus. First step in worshiping Christ is to take him as your Savior. What Jesus is looking for is those who will worship in spirit and in truth. Is that you? Do you trust this Jesus? I don't mean do you trust Him alongside other things you trust. I mean, do you trust Him above anything and everything else? Do you obey Him? Believing that all that He has said, all that He's taught, all that He's commanded really is for your good. I don't just mean for good overall, that's true, but for your good. Even if not seeming that way immediately. Even if it leads to hardship in this brief thing that we call life. Will you enjoy Him? Not because everything is perfect, but because the God of the universe cares for you and knows you. Will you grow in Him? Seeking to follow as a disciple, wanting to know what He has said so that your thinking would be adjusted of, yes, this matters, and that doesn't matter. Yes, I should prize this and not these things will you look to Him? When times are bad, will you follow Him even now and forever? That's how you know. That's what we see throughout the New Testament. And examples, well, not only the words that fall from Jesus' own lips, but that's the entire book of James. That's what we're going to see throughout here in Hebrews. How do you know if you believe these things? It's to live them. Let's pray that we, First E. Free, would lean into this kind of trust and live in this Christ-exalting way together. Heavenly Father, Lord, this is a different way of thinking for us. This is graciously bludgeoning us with your truth. It's shaking and rattling our thinking to reorient us towards what matters most, toward who matters most. Father, would would you work in us here at First E-Free that we would be known as a people who prize Jesus Christ, who are not ashamed of anything that he said or did, who don't try to minimize him or his return, but instead would you have us get our identity from following our Lord? Would you have us have thinking in a way that follows how Jesus says to think? Would you have our our acting, the actions that reflect what is true and good and worthy of praise. Lord, would you change our hearts that they would not be the hearts turning to stone of this world, trying everything else and failing and growing more and more discouraged and depressed, but instead would you give us hearts of flesh, hearts that are alive to Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ. And So, Lord, as we leave this place today, would you do the work in us? Make us worshipers. Make us followers. Make us disciples in Christ's name.